Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices with a special program covering two major reports that offer strategic advice on the future direction of health system pharmacy. The first conversation is about Pharmacy Forecast 2020, their latest edition of an annual assessment of emerging trends, along with related recommendations for getting ahead of the trends. The forecast is a project of the ASHP Foundation. The second discussion concerns updated recommendations of the ASHP Practice Advancement Initiative. The essential focus of the pharmacy forecast is what might happen, what might happen in pharmacy's environment over the next five years, and how practice leaders can prepare for impactful eventualities. For the Practice Advancement Initiative, the essential focus is what should happen, what should happen from the perspective of professional leaders in the development of pharmacy practice over the next 10 years. Both perspectives are vital in strategic planning for the pharmacy enterprise in hospitals and health systems, and both of these reports in the January 15, 2020 issue of the journal are essential reading for practice leaders. For the first discussion, I'm speaking with Lee Vermeulen, the editor of Pharmacy Forecast 2020. He is with UK Healthcare and the Colleges of Medicine and Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky. Lee, you say in the introduction to Pharmacy Forecast 2020 that forecasting future events is an important facet of creating well-informed strategic plans. Could you comment on how pharmacy departments can use this pharmacy forecast in their strategic planning process? Right. You know, it, strategic planning is a challenge. Uh, we're all faced in, in health systems and hospitals today with incredible change the pace of change is increasing. Our expectations, the expectations of our administrative teams are, have increased. And there's never been a time when strategic planning was more important. But it is a complicated process. You need to be able to think about the future while at the same time keeping your mind in the context of the, of the current you know, pace of change and challenges. The forecast itself, for me, provides, and what I recommend to pharmacy departments and hospitals and health systems is that they use the forecast as a way of getting the conversation started, of framing the events that should be coming in the future in a, in a way that can be systematically addressed and considered, but not necessarily as the only uh, information that they consider. They're, the forecast every year includes eight different topics, and those topics change uh, uh, on an annual basis. And and to look back at several forecasts sometimes is helpful as they start a forecast or a strategic planning effort. But it's really important that it provides this context that a conversation within a department and within a strategic planning process can use to, to move things forward. So I think it's a very helpful tool for that part of, of a leader's responsibility around strategic planning. Well, for the benefit of listeners uh, who are not familiar with the pharmacy forecast, uh, please review the method of developing this annual report. 
the development of the, of the forecast is a process that is very systematic, and we spend quite a bit of time working on the front end of the development process. So we, every year, bring together an advisory committee, a group of pharmacy leaders from around the country with specific areas of expertise in various aspects of, of pharmacy practice. Uh, we bring them together for a two-day meeting. And we develop the survey that is used to construct the, the background for the, for the forecast. The survey itself is made up of six different questions in eight different areas. And those questions range across those eight domains. The forecast panel is created by ASHP to represent the United States and pharmacy leaders from around the country. There's over 300 forecast panelists that respond to that survey uh, every year. We get amazing response rate, over over 85% every year, sometimes as much as 90% uh, response rate. So we get a really good representation of opinions around these 48 topics every year. And with those survey results, we turn to a group of authors. So we ask uh, influential pharmacy leaders, leaders from outside of pharmacy as well, to re react to, to respond to the survey results, to think about them in the context of what's coming over the coming five years, and then to write a provocative chapter, a manuscript that reacts to the survey, but also builds on it and starts to make recommendations. And those recommendations that are in the forecast are really critical. These are a response to the content of the survey, but also their thinking, the authors thinking about what's coming in the future. And it gives very specific, very deliberate recommendations to pharmacy leaders and hospitals and health systems about how to use the forecast uh, in their thinking around strategic planning. So that's the process we follow every year, and it, it has worked very well. This is coming into our ninth edition that we'll, we'll do for next year, uh, and it, the, the process works very well for us. Oh, very good. Well, Lee, unfortunately, we do not have time here to touch on each chapter of the 2020 report. So I've selected three of the eight domains for attention, and I invite you to comment on, say, one result uh, in each domain and uh, tell us, you know, pick one that's particularly important. And if there's a related strategic recommendation, why don't you comment on that, too? So let's start with uh, the healthcare marketplace domain. So this is a, a section that covers a lot of ground uh, around biosimilars, transparency of costs, and some regulatory issues that are coming in that, in that area. It, it was written by Bruce Scott, who's a recent Whitney Award winner, and Frank Sheehy, who's a health system administrator. This one has a particularly important question around specialty pharmacy and infusion care, and it focuses on whether health system-owned specialty pharmacies will be able to provide superior quality to, let's say, national providers of specialty pharmacy in ways that health system pharmacy can use to justify the existence of, of those provider-based programs. And it was an interesting result. Most of the survey respondents believe that it was likely that we will be able to provide in the next five years evidence that the care that we deliver in provider-based specialty pharmacy services are superior or at least as good as uh, as the national providers. And we think this is a really important finding because we know that the fragmentation of care that is provided to patients who are receiving specialty pharmacy products is really a challenge. And when we use an organization in specialty pharmacy that isn't directly connected to the care that we're providing to patients, there's a lot of opportunity for low quality and for, for risks. 
there's a recommendation in this case uh, in two different areas. One is to say we need to continue to work towards demonstrating, providing compelling evidence that the provider-based specialty pharmacy uh, services are superior to those of national organizations. But there's also a recommendation here, as we've seen the specialty market mature over the last uh, decade, to offer pharmacy leaders who don't currently have specialty pharmacy services offered to be cautious about moving into this space. There's a sense that perhaps our ability to continue that growth is starting to slow down, to plateau, and that it rec we recommend that we take more caution and care in starting new specialty pharmacy programs going forward as we face those kinds of risks. Oh, very interesting. Lee, uh, let's take uh, patient-centered care next. What can you say about a uh, particularly interesting finding there? This is one of my favorite sections of the forecast this year. It was written by uh, Megan Swartout and Caleb Alexander, both from Johns Hopkins. We cover a lot of ground in this space around patient-reported outcomes, the anti-vax movement, and so forth. But there's one question in particular that focuses on the likelihood that patients will begin to forego high-cost treatments, specialty pharmacy products, complicated therapeutics, cancer chemotherapy, that they'll start to forego treatment because of the high cost of those drugs and the high out-of-pocket expense that patients are starting to feel. There's a well-known phenomena occurring today around financial toxicity of medications, where the cost of those drugs is simply prohibitive and patients are starting to not accept them. There was an even split between our forecast in our forecast panel between those who believe that patients will end up over the next five years starting to increasingly forego treatment and those who really don't see that happening. But I think on our authors, what they've recommended is that we have to pay attention to this phenomenon. They believe it's likely to occur. And their recommendation focuses on shared decision-making. And it focuses in this very deliberate process of talking to patients about alternatives, about the choices that they have to make, and to include financial implications in that discussion in a very, very transparent way. And I think that's true regardless of what occurs in the future with, with financial toxicity, the, the, the notion of shared decision-making is an important thing that we continue to develop is an important one. Their recommendation is that we don't ignore financial implications when we're developing those kinds of services. That sounds quite important. Let's turn to pharmacy leadership next, Lee. What can you right. say here, uh, drawing our attention yeah. to something that you think is particularly important? It's a good section uh, written by uh, Sarah White and Jen Tryon and Conrad Emmerich. This section also covers quite a bit of ground around workplace violence, diversity and inclusion, uh, leadership uh, from pharmacy outside of organizations. One of the main questions in this section for me was the question about whether we're going to pursue within pharmacy a model similar to Magnet in nursing that would recognize pharmacy departments as centers of excellence and really focusing on whether that's something, that kind of model is desirable and is it something that might occur over the next five years. And our, our forecast panelists were, again, kind of evenly split between those who thought that was likely to occur uh, and those who really don't believe that we're going to be developing that sort of center of excellence recognition model, similar, again, to Magnet. In the recommendations, the authors speak to the importance of creating objective measures, uh, data-based, evidence-based measures that we can use to 
really establish whether a hospital or health system is providing that sort of excellence and is uh, should be recognized. We are going to have to create that sort of data structure in order to do a good job of creating that model and then applying it. My personal opinion is that we should be moving in that direction. And if we do, uh, I think creating that evidence-based and that those metrics for uh, objectively defining excellence will be very, very important. Lee, uh, one of the domains in the new report is devoted to black swans. Tell us what a black swan is and what are your key takeaways uh, that you would bring to readers' attention from this chapter? Right. This is a this is a section that we've thought about including for for several years. It was written actually by you, Bill, along with Scott Kinor and, and James Hoffman. The, the notion of the black swan was was kind of popularized by Nassim Taleb in a book recently that speaks to these occurrences that are very rare, uh, that are high impact, both positive or negative, uh, but are unpredictable. But in retrospect, after they occur seem to be something that we should have known could have happened, and we should have been able to prepare for them. The black swan notion, similar to something like the 9-11 tragedy, is something that we look back in retrospect, it was a significant event, it had huge catastrophic implications, and we look back in retrospect and think we should have known that was going to occur. These black swan events occur all the time, and they will continue to occur into the future. We wanted to look at the black swan idea in the context of the importance of becoming black, what, what Taleb calls black swan robust. He says, you know, we can't be black swan proof. We can't take our organizations or as individuals, we can't, be, we can't protect ourselves from black swans. They're going to occur. These kinds of rare, catastrophic, highly impactful events are going to occur, but we can be robust. Our organizations can be tolerant of these rare events occurring, and one of the key ways of doing that is having really robust strategic planning. As an organization, we have to recognize that these things are going to occur, and if we're working and leading an organization that is that is not very robust, it really has struggles day to day just 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 getting care delivered it's going to be very difficult for that organization to re- to respond successfully to these occurrences that we can't necessarily predict. And when those, when those events are, are catastrophic and really significant, it becomes very challenging for the organization. So we, we have a section in the forecast that looks at the degree to which, as individuals, as leaders, as departments, as healthcare organizations, from a patient's perspective or a community perspective, how prepared are we to deal with events that are going to occur that are like black swans, that are catastrophic, significant, rare, and impossible to predict? And I think what we've come up with in this uh, section is recommendations to really focus on strategic planning so that we can be tolerant and robust when these black swans, uh, when black swan events uh, start to occur. So that's the, the, the inclusion of this. Uh, I think it's a, it's a fairly progressive section and one that will be, I think, will speak to organizations in the context of, boy, I really need to get my strategic planning process improved so that I can be more robust and tolerant of these kinds of events. 
Lee, um, I've noticed over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, that uh, practitioners and others who use the pharmacy forecast often ask, well, how uh, accurate have the uh, forecast predictions been? Uh, how do you respond when that question comes up? Yeah, it's, it does. It comes up every every mid-year when we when we do our big reveal. Someone will stand up and say, well, boy, you know, you guys have been doing this for you know a number of years now. How 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 well have you done? As you know, I, I also contribute to a, another forecast, the expenditure forecast, where we are indeed in that forecast trying to be as precise as we can be with our pro projections of, of expenditure increases. In this forecast, though, we're really not looking for accuracy. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to be precise or accurate in our forecast. I always tell groups, you know, my, my crystal ball is only as clear as yours. But what I try to explain to people when I speak about the forecast or when we encourage people to use it is that as they read the forecast, which was developed to stimulate conversation to be provocative and to force people to think about the future. What I always tell people is if they read something in the forecast and they disagree with it, that that's fine. So long as they say, well, I don't agree with that recommendation or with that projection or prediction, as long as if they take something they don't agree with and think about what really, what they think will happen. If they say, well, I don't believe that's going to occur, they must have some alternative belief about what is more likely to happen, so long as they take that belief and they build it into their strategic planning process, they talk about it, they build a plan around what they believe is coming in the future, then the forecast will have met its objective. Our objective is to be provocative, is to provide a framework for discussion, and really accuracy is not one of our objectives in this particular project and this in this forecast every year. So that's that's our response. That's what we how we respond to to those questions every year. And I, I think we've done very a very good job in 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 providing that provocative statement in this year's forecast as well. Okay. Well, Lee, as we draw our conversation to a close here, I'd like to ask you: Can you comment on some of the more uh, innovative ways that the pharmacy forecast report has been used by various groups in healthcare or even in pharmacy education? We've been fortunate to have a lot of feedback from the pharmacy community uh, about the use of the forecast. We've seen it used within hospitals and health systems again as part of the strategic planning processes. As we hear about retreats and other strategic planning meetings, and the, the forecast is often used as pre-reading material or is used in journal clubs or conversations and, and seminars with pharmacy residents and other, other trainees when they will sit down and start to think strategically about the direction that pharmacy is taking. And those are very reasonable and appropriate uses of the forecast. We've heard quite a bit about the forecast being used in colleges and schools of pharmacy as material within the curriculum, uh, having seminars and allowing pharmacy students to think about the future of the profession they're moving into and, and becoming a part of. Those are very reasonable uses of the forecast, and we encourage those uses. But we also have been encouraging, and we've been hearing more and more that this is, this is happening, we've encouraged uh, pharmacy leaders to take copies of the forecast. And I usually recommend that you actually print the forecast in, from the AJHP website and take paper copies of the forecast to the C-suite, to the, the chief pharmacy officer or the pharmacy directors one up uh, in the C-suite, maybe more broadly, and circulate copies of the forecast 
to members of the executive leadership team of hospitals and health systems. It does a couple of things. One, I think it provides the C-suite the members of the of the executive team with really important information. Well, this is written with a pharmacy through a pharmacy lens. The information that's included in the forecast is is really applicable far more broadly than just in in pharmacy. And I think providing the members of the executive team with this information is valuable in and of itself. But I think it has another value. The the dissemination of of the forecast to the C-suite has another value, and that is to illustrate to the C-suite members, to the members of the senior, senior leadership, senior executive team of hospitals and health systems, that pharmacy leaders are thinking about these kinds of issues, these strategic issues in ways that most department heads, most department leaders within hospitals and health systems are not. And, and I think that's something that we should be proud of as a, as a profession, as a group of leaders, that we do think about these broad implications or these broad phenomena that are, that are impacting our profession and the delivery of the care of care that we provide. And we do think about that, uh, those things, in really impactful ways that make our pharmacy department stronger and better. And I think that's something that we should be, we should be very proud of, and we should illustrate that by providing that very tangible illustration to our C-suite members. So I think that's another use of the forecast that uh, it should be considered by pharmacy leaders around the country as they see the forecast every year, take copies of it up to their C-suite and, and share that uh, more broadly. Seems like an excellent point. Thank you, Lee. Well, my uh, congratulations to you on um, just an excellent, uh, stimulating addition new edition of the Pharmacy Forecast. And Lee, thank you so much for taking time uh, to discuss it here. I know it'll be uh, very interesting to listeners of AJHP Voices. Let's now turn to the ASHP Practice Advancement Initiative 2030, abbreviated as PAI 2030. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Marika of the ASHP staff and Dr. John Clark of the University of Michigan. Eric coordinated the updating process for the PAI, and John chaired the practitioner advisory panel for the project. Often in the past, ASHP has used a high-profile invitational conference to launch practice change initiatives. The process was quite different for the ASHP Practice Advancement Initiative 2030. Eric, uh, what were the major steps in creating PAI 2030, and why did ASHB use this approach? Yes, Bill. Well, thanks. Uh, essentially, it was a five-phase process, and it was loosely based on John Cotter's idea of a dynamic uh, guiding coalition that uh, intends to influence strategy. The appointment of a 15-member panel kicked it off, and that really consisted of some virtual meeting touch points, uh, review of some background material, online pre-meeting survey, and then ultimately a, a two-day in-person meeting. That was followed by a strategic planning retreat that also uh, further synthesized the, the findings from the initial 15-member panel. And then that work of that strategic planning retreat, uh, that was a two-day meeting as well. That uh, fed into a town hall that we held during our ASHP uh, summer meetings in Boston. And that consisted of upwards of 80 to 85 uh, participants. The work from the town hall and the subsequent touch points fed into a five-week public comment period 
that surveyed uh, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, and other stakeholders, both within and outside of the pharmacy profession. And then to the uh, fifth phase, that fed into the final approval by the ASHP Board of Directors. Now, why we use this type of approach, you know, being that the initial set of PAI recommendations were approaching a, a decade in existence, and really based on a disruptive trends that we're seeing in healthcare, uh, we, as in ASHP, felt uh, a need to create a sense of urgency around a refreshed set of focused thinking uh, and forward thinking concepts. The, the approach uh, that we took uh, and repurposing some of the successful methods used by some of the other ASHP consensus building uh, meetings uh, was to quickly assemble this, this guiding coalition. They were able to identify opportunities early enough to help really uh, with a focus on pharmacy practitioners, leaders, organizations that would help them uh, identify some strategies uh, nimbly enough to embrace forward-thinking opportunities, essentially to be the disruptor and not the disrupted. It was also a matter of frugality. You know, in this era of shrinking travel budgets, reduced corporate support of, of meetings, and uh, time commitment conflicts uh, from busy professionals, we thought this may be uh, a way of approaching this methodology. And then lastly, thinking beyond even 2030, economy of scale and to minimize the static nature of the recommendations by finding a reproducible and fiscally sustainable process, we thought was necessary for ongoing strategic agility to keep the recommendations fresh and aspirational. So really in essence, uh, patience, uh, persistence and periodic course corrections we find are going to be necessary as we continue on the journey. Well, very good. And you certainly had a large number of individuals uh, having an opportunity and following and using that opportunity for input. So that sounds good. Uh, John, uh, Eric mentioned uh, the advisory panel, uh, and you chaired uh, that panel for PAI 2030. Uh, what was the charge to the panel, and uh, what were some of the panel's major considerations as it pursued the project? Yes, our our charge was to uh, create forward-thinking, aspirational, measurable, and possible uh, vision for the future of the practice of pharmacy as we head into 2030. The group was multidimensional in its experiences and provided us the opportunity to have different thought processes as we got together to consider what the future could look like. Um, our goals were to make the recommendations aspirational and measurable whenever possible. We used the ASHP guidelines as a minimum standard and then expressed our goals for our expectations beyond these minimum standards. Uh, we also used information from previous PAI, PPMI, and the PPMI Ambulatory Care as background information to help us lead to the future and see what we've grown, see what we haven't grown, and be able to explain what the future of pharmacy can look like in the recommendations we created. The PAI 2030 report says that the new recommendations are linked to achieving the ASHP vision that medication use will be optimal, safe, and effective for all people all the time. This linkage implies that the recommendations are geared toward addressing the major barriers 
in achieving the ASHP vision. John, is that uh, assumption or implication uh, that I've stated correct? Yes, we're working to look towards uh, elimination of barriers towards uh, providing practice at the patient care level and what what we could do as a profession to move forward. Um, some thoughts around that included um, improvement around uh, patient-centered care, um, the role of pharmacists in education and training, uh, technology and data science, uh, pharmacy, technician, education and training, and leadership in medication use and safety. If we consider these aspects, there um, there are barriers around each one of these as we consider how we take care of patients on a daily basis in health systems. Um, an example around patient-centered care, uh, are we an essential member of every patient care team? Is that patient care team looking to their pharmacist for recommendations on what therapies that patient should ideally be on? And we tried to create recommendations that were structured around uh, those five categories of recommendations and put those recommendations in those categories so that we could express it well uh, to those uh, readers and those trying to apply this in health systems. Eric, what would you add? I would say, yes, the recommendations were designed to embrace future opportunities and are they're not necessarily fixated on today's barriers to change, but they do help influence some of that. One uh, can essentially use the recommendations as directional guidance to help formulate a change initiative that's appropriate and prioritized for one's own practice setting and, and particularly their patient population they serve. With respect to addressing the major barriers um, and the ASHP vision, I think you could say that the approach is also consistent with the quadruple aim framework. Uh, essentially cost, quality, access, and care of the care team, that, that wellness and resiliency focus. And it also serves as a foundation for the practitioner's organization and profession of focusing on optimizing health for people, which, again, is specifically in our, our vision. Well, Eric, I'd like to address this next question to you. Within each category of recommendations in PAI 2030, there are three subcategories based on to whom a recommendation is directed. For example, directed to pharmacy practitioners or the healthcare institution or the profession of pharmacy. This suggests that for certain recommendations, there will be some ASHB advocacy to healthcare executives or to leaders in other sectors of pharmacy. Is that correct? Yes, and really advocate, advocating uh, public policy for health system pharmacy has been and continues to be a really a core strength for ASHP, and that's specifically at the, the grassroots, state, and federal levels. So I'll give you an example. A practice-focused recommendation is pharmacists should leverage their scope of practice, including prescribing, to optimize patient care. So this uh, requires a calculated and a, a focused strategy at the state level to expand scopes of practice and mechanisms to grant privileges uh, to pharmacist providers. You know, another example may be an organization-focused recommendation centered on providing a, a safe and appropriate level of staffing in underserved areas or rural hospitals. And this, this requires advocacy for funding and innovative payment models to preserve that patient access to pharmacy services. And then uh, one final example, a profession-focused 
is partnering with other uh, interprofessional organizations, uh, so our, maybe our medicine and nursing colleagues, so that we can help define and delineate practice advances into state and federal laws and regulations. You know, and a, a way to do this is by members contacting congressional representatives and supporting the work of our political action committee. These are ways of, of helping advocate for the realization of the recommendations. I'm going to uh, read another of the recommendations uh, geared toward pharmacy practitioners so that listeners uh, get an even uh, deeper sense of how uh, the advice in PAI 2030 is, is typically structured. So this comes uh, also from the patient-centered care section, and the recommendation reads, the pharmacy workforce should collaborate with patients, caregivers, payers, and healthcare professionals to establish consistent and sustainable models for seamless transitions of care. Now, listeners will have noticed that this recommendation is largely outcomes-focused, uh, talking about seeking consistent and sustainable seamless transitions of care, rather than specifying exactly how that should be achieved. So, John, uh, are practitioners going to need some guidance in how to assess the extent to which their practice site has gaps related to various recommendations? I believe there's several opportunities for ASHP and other organizations and uh, health systems to work together to look at these recommendations as places where education can occur about these specific pieces with the transitions of care, uh, sharing models of how transitions of care is influenced by the use of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians in organizations, uh, providing guidance documents about how um, some of our policy recommendations can actually happen at a state and local level as it relates to goals that we we're trying to achieve, as well as policy statements that can be created by ASHP from a professional organization perspective to um, allow understanding at the grassroots about what's expected of some of these recommendations. Uh, additionally, tools um, for measurement of progress, either at a state, local, or health system level, would be tremendously helpful in some of these recommendations to see how we're doing either as an institution, as a state, or as a national-level professional organization. Eric, do you have any comments on what ASHP will be doing specifically in this regard? Again, I'm uh, thinking largely on helping practitioners assess where they have gaps related to various recommendations. Yes, Bill. You know, building on John's comments, I would say throughout 2020, ASHP and the ASHP Foundation, uh, along with the, the help of engaged members, will uh, be releasing some resources, tools, and research support for the uh, adoption and implementation of the recommendations. You know, one such tool that's still in development is a, a new self-assessment tool. So it's a, a gap analysis tool that will ultimately replace the existing hospital and ambulatory care self-assessment tools that we have presently. But I, I do want to stress that maximizing member input and involvement really our engaged army of volunteers are pivotal to any initiative that we we launch here at ASHP, they, they are pivotal to success broadly and specifically through state affiliates, through our student societies, and through our section and forum activity. Without them, none of this would be possible, and, and they'll help guide this evolution of practice change 
as uh, we move forward over the next decade. You know, I was very interested in the PAI 2030 report where it says that ASHB will be identifying and promoting particular bold and ambitious changes in health system pharmacy that will have a major impact on improving responsible use of medicines. Eric, can you give us a sense of what we're likely to see in this regard? Yes, and I'll uh, let you know that these are still evolving, but in early 2020, we intend to release some time-bound focused initiatives, uh, which will be tied to some of the uh, PAI 2030 recommendations. So they're to be used really as a complementary piece, but the initiatives or we're also, we, we loosely refer to those as bold aims, are intended to uh, accelerate movement towards specific goals. And the objective here would be to celebrate visible short-term wins. Uh, and you could say that they're akin to the CMS uh, setting of bold care improvement goals as part of the Partnership for Patient Initiative. Well, John, um, thinking about all this then from a practice leader's standpoint, what advice do you have uh, to practice leaders for using the PAI 2030 report? All practice advancement ends up being local. So ASHP and the PAI report provide a framework uh, to think about outcomes that are related to improvement in uh, patient care and patient care outcomes working with state affiliates, um, local health systems, and the specific hospitals. There need to be efforts in each one of those areas in order to bring this to uh, the direct care of patients. And working in this way, this framework can allow for ideas and opportunities to arise in those local hospitals. Uh, when we're given opportunities and information, uh, we can provide uh, information to the leadership of the hospitals or leadership of organizations about what that gap looks like in our particular circumstance. And I believe that's what practice leaders can do with these PAI recommendations is create uh, a gap analysis for their practice sites in order to see how they can achieve um, the 2030 goals. Well, as we bring our conversation to a close, uh, I'd like to invite each of you, starting with you, Eric, to comment on this. Do you have any final uh, recommendations or thoughts on PAI 2030 that you want to emphasize to listeners? You know, three takeaways I'll, I'll leave with you are really for practitioners, organization, and the really the profession at large to, to study the recommendations and determine how to adopt and in, implement those for your particular situation and update as conditions evolve. And of note, the recommendations tend to be more aspirational rather than uh, prescriptive. Uh, number two, it would be help create PAI 2030 tools and resources, and uh, they can serve as an incubator for emerging best practice to share with others across the profession. And then lastly, uh, to communicate the recommendations broadly and uh, across uh, with your other colleagues and other interprofessional colleagues as well, uh, to create some buy-in and abundance to attract that volunteer army and to provide some direction, purpose, and meaning. Uh, we really want to be uh, the change agents and not those being subject to change. Mm -hmm. John, uh, anything you'd like to add in terms of emphasis for listeners? Uh, from my perspective, I have a great appreciation for the baseline that we were given in order to achieve the goals of uh, creating 
um, these recommendations. Um, the baseline included uh, using PPMI recommendations, PAI recommendations, the ASHP Ambulatory Care Summit uh, to lead us to the recommendations that were headed to 2030. And so we had information to look forward and forward thinking, uh, looking at where we've been, where we are, and where we can go in the future. Uh, this foundational work helped us create a vision for the future goals of the profession and will allow us to achieve these goals as we move forward for the next 10 or 11 years. Well, Eric and John, I really appreciate the time you've given me here for this conversation. Thank you so much. This has been a special installment of AJHP Voices, focused on two items of great importance in pharmacy department strategic planning. First up was a conversation with Lee Vermeulen of the University of Kentucky. Lee is the editor of Pharmacy Forecast, and we spoke about the 2020 edition of that annual report. That was followed by Dr. Eric Maroika of the ASHP staff and Dr. John Clark of the University of Michigan, who discussed the ASHP Practice Advancement Initiative 2030. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.